0: Why don't we just start again? (coughs) It's really quite sad in its own way. (coughs) So, what to do now? Coming to an end, probably now more than (coughs) at many times during the retreat, you probably have a sense (coughs) of just how precious and special (coughs) yogi land is. Really, this amazingly pure space. Pure in the sense of there being the opportunity to really see clearly what is going on. And it's so very rare in our lives you know, to have this space of clarity in a space of purity. (coughs) One of the big questions now is how in some way to carry the practice, to carry the space (coughs) into our daily lives, into our ordinary lives, outside of the protection know of the sanctuary. I think what's <coughs> extremely important in the short term is to have an understanding, as you probably <coughs> gleaned some this week, that there is a whole process <coughs> of transition and that in this process of transition there are a lot of ups and downs of many different kinds. The transition doesn't happen only during this week. It, It will happen in the weeks and even months after you leave. There's ups and downs of moods. You know there'll be a kind of excitement when you leave and go out and you are faced with all the stimulation of the world. And there can also be a real crashing. Sometimes people get very depressed after some time being back in the world. You know, and sometimes there's feelings of tremendous closeness with people and oneness with people and sometimes feelings of real separation and alienation. and feeling that people are not really connecting with what you've just been through. What's very helpful is to know that these swings and these changes are a very natural part of the transition. They happen to almost everybody. And so if you can see them in context, then it's possible to be considerably less identified with them and just to see them as part of the changes, keeping the mind in a place of balance. Be prepared just (coughs) for this to happen. And if you are, and if you can keep that equanimity, it won't be a problem. There are a few critical understandings or insights that are essential (coughs) to reflect upon And to investigate if you want to successfully integrate the practice into your life. The first of these is that the Dharma is everything. It's not just what happens here. Notice this whole process of Nama Rupa of mental physical phenomena, the dance of the elements that is happening within each one of us is happening in the world, in the solar system, in the galaxies, in the 10,000 world systems, in the maha-kalpas. It's all the same processes going on. And so we don't want to fragment our understanding to think that some one small part of it is our dharma practice and the rest is something else. That fragmentation can cause tremendous inner conflict in our lives because then we get to feel that things become a distraction for us or or are apart from the path of awakening. Instead of the genuine and deep realization that it's all of a piece. And in some way that what we do on retreat is the honing of skills necessary to see this process of dharma unfolding throughout our lives. Non-fragmentation, seeing that the dharma is all of our lives, is a key insight to really cherish and hold, to deepen our understanding of. <clears throat> Key insight number two. <clears throat> there will be a little quiz tomorrow morning. <laughs> so. is that the same effort which is required on retreat is required outside of retreat. And I think this is one of the easiest things to forget. Somehow we can get to that place of understanding that yes, we are on retreat and we really have to make a good effort to develop these factors of mind. And that somehow we have a belief or a hope or something that, well, I've done all this work and now it should just follow me. It doesn't work like that. In some sense, what we've been doing is learning how to make right effort. So that that right effort can be made outside of retreat as well. The Buddha, among all his other telling statements, he said one thing in this regard which is very helpful if we can remember it. He said that when we make the effort in Dhamma practice, wisdom grows. And when we don't make the effort, wisdom diminishes. So it's not that wisdom is something which, you know, we can get and hold and is there, like everything else. It is a process. We practice and it grows. We don't practice. Practice in the larger sense and it diminishes. So this understanding that the same effort that we make here is needed on the outside is essential if we don't want the wisdom that has been developing to wane. Then the question arises, what kinds of efforts are appropriate? what's appropriate on retreat, what's appropriate outside of retreat. And there are some very clear and systematic guidelines to what kinds of effort we need to make to integrate this into our lives. The Buddha talked of the whole path of Dhamma practice as being the development of three domains of training, three kinds of training. The first of them is the training in sila, the training in virtue. What this means is that we need to make the effort to pay attention to our actions. We need to make the effort to really observe what is happening in the myriad of actions that we perform during the day. And we can watch them from various perspectives. We can watch them from the perspective (coughs) of how they affect our own minds, of what qualities In our minds, are being strengthened when we perform various things. And it's not just, you know, big, unusual, major actions, it's the ordinary, everyday things that we do. What's being strengthened in the kind of speech we use? It's an action, it's a powerful action. The Buddha talked a lot about the power of speech. Are we observing? Are we watching? What is the quality? What's the effect in our minds when we use various kinds of speech? When you leave here, you know here things have been quite regulated. What kind of actions around food, around eating? You you go home and you'll be living in your daily surroundings. Food's very available. What's the relationship to it? How often are we taking food? What purpose is it serving? What's happening in our minds with respect to it? You've probably had... (coughs) more than just a glimpse of how strong the conditioning is in the mind around food. Something There's something powerful happening in those actions, just to observe, just to really watch and see what's happening in the mind. To observe through the day how we're actually spending our time. You now we're, we're an energy system. This mind-body is an energy system. What are we doing with it? What choices are we making? All of this is really part of understanding sila and refining sila. And it comes <coughs> not from a kind of super ego trip of the mind. No, it doesn't come from a moralistic, self-righteous framework. It all comes from the power of observation, of watching the effect of actions on the mind. See what is being strengthened. So that's one perspective. The second perspective in training ourselves in Sila, and refining it, is seeing the effect on others. What is the effect of this action on other people? Is it helpful? Is it harmful? And the third perspective, which really combines the first two, is understanding actions in terms of the long-range karmic consequences. Somebody once nicknamed me the Long Ranger. (laughs) It's just so important to see things in a larger context. You know, what kind of seeds are we planting? And what kind of fruits will come from those seeds? And do we want those fruits? Because it doesn't make sense to be planting the seeds for fruits that we don't want. So this takes attention, this takes not a heavy attention, it's not kind of going through life you know, with a grimness. It's really the quality of interest, the sense that we are fashioning our lives. This life and perhaps many lives we're creating it. Can we be creative? Can we really bring that quality? Working with sila and refining sila is not an insignificant part of this training. It really is one leg of the tripod. And there's a tremendous vitality in taking it and understanding it as a training so that we're not simply necessarily satisfied with our current level of understanding, but see that like all the other factors you know, of, of enlightenment, this can be refined. One of the great gifts of this refinement of Sila out of of many blessings that it actually bestows upon us in our lives is the gift of non-remorse. This is tremendously powerful at the time of death because The mind at the time of death is going to condition the kind of rebirth. If we've done actions that fill us with remorse, that's a tremendous burden, that's a tremendous heaviness. The time of dying. When we've established ourselves and are actually actively (coughs) cultivating our sila, We are, we are truly enlightening the mind. We are lightening it from this darkness of remorse. And it doesn't mean that we haven't all done many unwholesome things. because We're all trailing you know, a long history of that, but the power comes from the moment that we are committed, from the moment that we have established ourselves in sila, and, and the real interest in training ourselves in it. It's from that moment that it gives us this tremendous strength, tremendous lightness of mind. It bestows blessings in other ways Because it is the power of sila (coughs) that gives force to our aspirations. We all have different aspirations in our lives. And for some they come easily, and for some they come with great difficulty. Over lifetimes, You know, it's the accumulation of this parami, of non-harming. Non-harming ourselves, non-harming of others. Which creates the ease of aspirations being fulfilled. And so it's this great lubrication in life. Sometimes, I don't know whether you've experienced it here or not, but sometimes this becomes so noticeable on retreat, when when the sila is really being kept very purely. Many times in my practice, in the middle of retreat, I would just have this very strong wish for something. And it would just, you know, the same day, the next day, all of a sudden it would appear. And this, this happens not once, but many, many times to many, many people. You know, because there's a power in it. gives the blessing of non-remorse the blessing of giving power to our aspirations there's one more blessing which in some way is more intangible perhaps the deepest and that is It's, it's the power and refinement of sila which creates a beautiful heart. That's where beauty is. And it's something that can be felt from the inside and perceived from the outside. And people who have well developed it, there is a shining, there really is a shining of the heart. I'd like to read one poem which I think is at least tangentially related to this. It's by Galway Canal. I don't know if Michelle has read any of his poems. He's a wonderful poet. The name of this poem is Saint Francis and the Sow. those of you who may not be familiar with the word Sal, it's a female pig. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As Saint Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. The sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the blue milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them, the long perfect loveliness of sow. So sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness and retell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self blessing. This is the power and the beauty of Sila, it reteaches us the loveliness. attention to different kinds of actions. You you can use the framework (coughs) of the five precepts. This is kind of general categories to look at in our lives. Of not killing and not stealing and not committing sexual misconduct. Not (coughs) using false speech and not taking intoxicants which cloud the mind. But it's really everything. It's really paying attention to all of our actions. <coughs> this is the first field, the first domain of training. And we can do this. and In some sense, our lives outside of retreat <coughs> gives us more opportunity to really look at this and work with this and train ourselves. Second field of training is samadhi. Samadhi in this context means three factors of mind. It means the cultivation of effort, of mindfulness, and of concentration. Any single one of these by itself is like a single thread (coughs) that can easily be broken the three together are like three three threads twined, spun together, they become very strong. When we are cultivating effort and mindfulness and concentration, these factors perform something quite amazing in our minds, and that is, they prevent the kilesas which may be arising from overwhelming us. These kilesas, these defilements, these unwholesome states of mind, which <coughs> until we are arhants, will continue to arise at different times. But if these three factors are strong, we see them. We see them at the door of the mind. And they don't have the power to be so overwhelming. <coughs> About a week or two ago, when I gave the talk on you know, the nature of the mind and how the kilesas are not intrinsic to the mind but come to visit but actually deceive us into thinking they live there. One of the yogis came to an interview the next day, told me a little story of his being at his mother's home in California. I guess it's quite a, you know, quite a, a nice home and it had one of these automatic gates. He was home alone And he heard the buzzer, so he just assumed it was somebody who belonged. Uh, So he opened the gate. He went outside to meet this person, (coughs) and he took one look at this person, and this kind of this person had the glint of madness in his eyes. And so this the yogi said, "Uh, "What do you want?" And in this kind of crazed way, this person said, Well, I live here. (laughs) And the Yogi said, Just for a split second. And he wondered, Well, maybe he does. (laughs) (laughs) This is really what happens with the (laughs) Khaleysas. You know, they arise, they ring the bell. (laughs) They come on in. And often more than for a split second, we believe that they actually live here. When effort and mindfulness, just that observing power and concentration, that steadiness of mind, when we're practicing these and they're strong, we're not taken in. We see them arising, they come and go. What this does for us in our lives is transform the quality of how we're living living. Because the mind itself is by nature pure, is by nature peaceful. So as the Kaleuses don't have so much opportunity to overwhelm the mind, they'll still come. But when we're in the relationship to them of these three factors, we start living in a much more peaceful way, start living in a much more tranquil way. So then, how is it that we can keep these factors strong on retreat? Most of the energy, most of the effort that we make is precisely to be cultivating these three qualities. How to do it outside? Few suggestions. <clears throat> the first, and in some way most important. Mirabai talked about it last night, is to sit every day. The discipline of a daily sitting practice. It is often difficult to do. You know, and it's so hard to believe that it's difficult to do after you've been sitting you know, 10 or 12 or 40, sitting and walking so many hours a day. You think, to sit three hours will be nothing. I can do that easily. Two hours is hard, one hour is hard. It is really hard to keep that commitment. And so to recognize that it's hard really can empower you to make the commitment to do it. Otherwise it really begins to slip away. And as the Buddha said, when we don't practice, wisdom wanes, wisdom diminishes. It's not like we're going to just hold on to to where we have gotten to or to any realizations that we've had. It actually gets weaker without practice. What most diminishes the resolve to practice is the mind which starts judging the quality of the sittings. Because just as on retreat, you have a good one, you have a bad one, there's times when you're real clear, times when the mind's wandering. Just the same outside. There are going to be huge variations. There'll be times when you sit and the whole hour is thinking. And one of the thoughts probably will be... This is crazy. Why am I doing this? I'm just thinking. you know. And so we weaken our resolve to keep it going. That is the voice of Mara. I know that I mentioned to the whole group, I know I've mentioned to some of you in an interview, the technique of wagging the finger at Mara. Mara, I see you. You find that in the suit is very not the wagging the finger but the, <laughs> <laughs> the comment Mara I see you. I think it actually is very helpful to personify it in that way because it kind of you know creates that heroic energy. Don't believe the judgments about the sittings. just sit and sometimes they'll be good and sometimes they'll be difficult. it doesn't matter just sit. It's the continuity and the perseverance which is what's building the power of mind. Sit as much as you can. If you can do three hours a day, that's great. Probably most of you that's a little unrealistic. Try and sit in the morning and evening. At the bare minimum, survival level, sit at least once a day. The second way of strengthening these three factors the samadhi group of effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And it is found over and over again in the suttas. Now, it's a lot of what you have been practicing is <clears throat> the cultivation of mindfulness of the body. Stay in your body. Make the effort to pay attention to the simple movements, to the different postures. It doesn't have to be super refined or microscopic in detail. Make the effort to be mindful. The concentration will come from that. Notice the difference, and this is something that's very clear and noticeable as we're moving about. Notice the difference between when you're in your body and feeling it and when you're rushing to get someplace or rushing to do something. The sense of rushing is a clear signal that we're not being mindful of the body, that we're ahead of ourselves that our mind is anticipating something. We're not back, we're not settled in. It doesn't have to do with speed. You can be moving fast or slow and either rushing or not rushing. Work with mindfulness of the body. It's such a, an effective way of simply being present. And when we're present, the mind is calm, the mind is collected. sitting every day, mindfulness of the body. A very beautiful way of strengthening these three factors of effort, mindfulness, and concentration is listening to sounds. It's very spacious. When we open up, we just listen. And it can be the sounds of nature. We're just sitting quietly, just listening to the loud ones and to the subtle ones. And it's not limited to the sounds of nature. It can be the sounds of New York City. It's its own nature. Right? And it can be loud and clanging and gunshots and you know, all the things, all the sounds that one hears. One of the places I found it extremely helpful to pay attention to sound is traveling on planes and buses and You know, when you leave here and you start traveling, especially if you're on a plane or a bus or a train, just sometimes sit and see how much of experience is really sound. And how if we're not mindful of it, there is quite a tension created in keeping it out. Because often it's unpleasant. It's an unpleasant sound. And I've seen this so often in myself. It's like trying to block it out and a kind of contraction from doing that. And the difference when there's just a settling back and an opening up, feeling the vibration of those sounds I and mean, you feel it in the body, it's an easy way and a spacious way to again be cultivating this samadhi group, working with sounds. Working with our thoughts and emotions. There are different levels of working with them. One of them is, as you have been doing, and the need to keep doing it, not to stop when you leave retreat, is to really become familiar with the tapes. What are the tapes that keep on playing, that so condition our perception of things? Because when we're lost in the tapes of the mind, and when we're lost in these stories, we are not with what's actually happening. We're with our own created concepts. We're seeing everything through the filter of our own particular uh, concepts. And so can we watch? Can we observe in interaction with people, whether it's family or intimate relationships or work or whatever? What's going on in the mind? Are we paying attention to it or are we just kind of <laughs> blindly sleepwalking through it all? So one level is just to recognize. You know There's this tape or this tape. Another level <coughs> which I find <coughs> just so interesting is in the middle of all of it to just be asking the question, what is this phenomenon? What is a thought? What is an emotion? It is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you've had three months just to be sitting and watching and it's just, just this phenomenon. And it really creates, just in any situation, sometimes I find myself sitting in restaurants, or just, just when there's a, you know, in any kind of social or public situation, if there's a few quiet moments, just to kind of sit back and see the whole scene, just watch this phenomena, thoughts going through, and knowing that they're going through everybody else's mind as well. It's all quite bizarre. <laughs> I mean, it really is. And what is so bizarre is that we believe it all. I mean, we are so in it and so involved and so identified. It really becomes this wonderful place of just watching, just observing, so that we're not so caught, so that we're awake rather than asleep. Just in a very simple way, you know, there's sitting every day, there's mindfulness of the body, (coughs) there's listening to sounds, there's working with thoughts and emotions. Work with the breath a lot, just in the day, in very ordinary situations, take a few moments just to come back to the breath. Experiment a bit with the noting. For the most part, it's a technique that's that's used in intensive practice on retreat. Many people have just begun to see, okay, what part of their daily life outside, what part can it play? Because it's a way, again, of strengthening those factors of the samadhi group, of effort, mindfulness, concentration. Just bringing this back with with a sense of accuracy and exactness. See where you can employ it. Obviously, you're not going to go through the whole day noting everything. But there may be times when you find it really useful. One field of training is sila. One field of training is samadhi. The third field of training is panya, or the development of wisdom. One of the places that is most fruitful for the developing and deepening of wisdom and the one which we most often don't use are those times of difficulty in our lives. Those times when we're really suffering. When we're caught up in some way and we're having a difficult time that can be so fruitful for us. If we have enough mindfulness, enough remembering to actually use it rather than simply be drowning in it or wallowing in it or blaming conditions or other people for our suffering. If we can remember to turn our attention inward, to investigate what is the cause of this suffering. Where is the attachment? Where is the fear? Where am I getting caught? Where is the identification? Because ultimately the suffering is happening because of some relationship in our own minds. What's so powerful about these times is that In those situations, the Four Noble Truths are not theoretical. Number one is right there. (laughs) The truth of suffering, we're in it, we're in the middle of it. And so, it is a great time to look. Okay, What is the suffering and what is the cause of it? Understanding that there is an end to it and understanding how to unhook. But we have to be willing to investigate at that time. There has to be enough effort and mindfulness and concentration to really look and to really see. I'm going to suggest something now which I've had some controversy about with my colleagues (laughs) but I have found quite useful (laughs) and I'll put it in the context of just a a personal story (coughs) as one of my relationships was breaking up, <coughs> not from my own wishes, it was quite painful, you know, and there was a lot of suffering, but it was clearly happening. She was leaving. <laughs> and I just saw very clearly At that time, there was a divergence. Sort of like the Robert Frost poem, Two Roads in the Woods. One road was, I could keep on wanting and suffer, because it wasn't happening. Or, I could choose not to want and not suffer. And just as I saw those two roads, it inspired me just to see if I could find that place of choice. To see, okay, where is, where in the mind is that place of choice, that opportunity of choice? And in that particular situation, I was really able to find it and just say, I don't have to want. I can choose not to want. A little controversy that goes on is... some of my colleagues feel that this is not so much a moment of choice, but a process that one goes through. My sense is we probably, they're probably both right. There may be a process in coming to that place of choice, but knowing that it's there can hasten the process. Knowing that at some place in the mind, we are choosing to be attached. We are choosing to want. And it may be very difficult to get to. And Many times we may not be able to see it. You know, and it will just be a process gradually of letting go. But I put it out just from my experience of seeing that, at least if we know that it's there, it might inspire a kind of looking or investigation. Maybe we're actually able to choose ways that don't bring us suffering. Just play with it. You know, just experiment with that in your own experience. One way of getting some clarity about our attachments, an attachment is, it's the big one, you know, it's the second noble truth, attachment is the cause of suffering. And so it's a big, big thing to look at in our lives. There are many kinds of attachments and there are gross attachments and subtle attachments. In this training in wisdom, how can we begin to work? How can we begin to see and explore? One way is just to see them in terms of some general categories. you know, So we can just begin to get a little clarity about them. The Buddha talked about four kinds of attachments. The first kind is the attachment to sense objects attachment to sense pleasures. And we're all familiar with what that means and what that is. But I wanted to share with you something that happened in the last poly class. Now, as Andy said in his talk, there are often nuances or a flavor in poly that is just not found in English. Something really shifted for me we were going over the first the first discourse of the Buddha and just you know halting, halting poly going word by word by word because it changed something so radically for me, I want to share with you and maybe you'll find it meaningful, maybe not. I'd always read about this attachment to sense pleasures or sense objects and understood it in a particular way. And so, you know, I would just be observing my relationship to different pleasurable experiences, sense experiences, sort of measuring, you know, the degree of attachment. And there's not much attachment there, you know, so I just go for it. Uh, <laughs> and I think in a genuine way there wasn't a lot of attachment and if it didn't happen or you know, it left it didn't create much ripple in the mind but in going over the Pali what it said in the Pali was not attachment to sense pleasures what it said was attachment to or delight in the happiness of sense pleasures. And somehow that reframed the whole experience for me. Because what I saw was that there was a certain. how to say this? that there was, there was an attachment, not so much to the pleasure itself or to the object itself, but to those moments, and often they are just a few, but just to those moments of happiness that comes from the experience of the sense pleasures. And that's what kept pulling, that's why I would keep going for it, because there was a kind of delight in that happiness. But not seeing that, and seeing well, there's not much attachment to the pleasure itself, or to the object itself. I wasn't seeing this continual moving of the mind for those moments of happiness. And just since seeing that, since seeing the difference, you know, in the language, and just watching my mind in those moments of coming into contact with different sense objects, seeing the move towards towards those. To the delight and the happiness, so oh, (laughs) the mind—it became so obvious that those moments of happiness were really fleeting. In many situations, I just oh, I don't have to do that. Whereas before, I would do it with the kind of understanding, "Well, I'm not really attached to it." And what I found was, in just very simple little ways, it's not you know great big things, but in just very simple little ways the mind stopped moving so much which is itself a much greater place of peace and rest so I don't know whether you kind of you know, got the gist of this but uh, since it just happened I wanted to <laughs> uh, Okay, so just to take a look at you know, that domain of attachment. The second domain of attachment, which is just critical for us to look at in our lives, is our attachment to opinions. Because we have opinions about everything. We have opinions about ourselves, about other people, about politics, about society, about everything. I mean, And it's our attachment to them which creates conflict. It's not the opinions itself. we, We will have opinions and perspectives. But to the degree that we are so caught and attached to them, we're going to be in conflict with somebody who has a different opinion. And it is inevitable that people will have different opinions about things. We're all conditioned in different ways. We're looking at things from different angles. We have different sensibilities and different sensitivities. So much of our interpersonal conflicts happen because of attachment to opinions. Uh, the Buddha just he really highlighted this one and I think it's a very fruitful place for us to look at and, um, and observe. Just read, uh, heard on tape, uh, Robert Bly quoting a poem. This is a tape of Bly talking about Blake, Uh, quoting another poet uh, about people communicating with one another. It's a great little poem. If you want to talk, you know, communicate with someone, if you want to talk, first, ask a question, then listen. That's all. If you want to talk, first, ask a question, then listen. Because that's what opens up the other person's viewpoint, the other person's perspective. Then we can really talk. So just... Begin to work with seeing the attachment to opinions. In that regard, I think it's also really helpful to discriminate between what we know and what we believe. Because we may have lots of beliefs about things conditioned by a million different things. That's very different than what we actually know. So just to see, to see how much of our opinions are based on belief and how much based on our own knowledge. The third great domain of attachment is attachment. The Buddha, he used phraseology which was very relevant to those times, attachment to rites and rituals. even though those words may not connect with us so much, I think they have a deep meaning in two ways. I think it means that we have to really deeply understand what leads to what. Because we have our own, I mean, in, in India in those times, there were lots of rites and rituals. If you bathe in the Ganges, you know, you're purified of your sins. And Rites and rituals of those kinds. Every culture has rites and rituals. You know, And they become so much a part of us that we don't even see them. Just to see what actions are leading to what results. And the whole aspect of spiritual materialism, where we become so attached to a technique, to a way of practice, to a form, that we're actually strengthening the sense of self rather than weakening it. And all the sectarianism which you find in every tradition, I mean, it's quite astounding. Uh, and it's in Buddhism as much as in all the other traditions. Have to be really watchful that we don't get so attached that we're actually strengthening this sense of self. Uh, and it's easy to begin to feel when we begin feeling separate. You know, I know the way and nobody else does. It's a clear sign. Okay, and the last is attachment to the happiness of sense pleasures. There's attachment to opinions, attachment to rites and rituals or the spiritual materialism. And the last of the attachments is attachment to this idea or concept of self. We've talked a lot about it over these three months. What I would suggest in terms of working with this in one's life, is to pay attention through the day. You're going through the day and things are going along nice and smoothly and flowing. And then something happens and there's a It's like there's there's a contraction around something and all of a sudden there's this strong sense of I. It can be around an emotion, around a thought, around a reaction, around a sensation. Ah, I want this to continue. That's an I. Oh, I hate this. That's an I. Just to see, just to watch, just to observe where it happens. Because the I is not something that we have to destroy. It's not something that's there that we have to get rid of. It's something that is created in particular moments of identification. And so if we just watch, we really watch carefully, we bring wisdom into our lives, where, in what moments, what situations is this I being created? Just a few more things. All of this has to do with this cultivation of this third domain of training, which is the domain of wisdom. Some things which nourish wisdom and really strengthen it. Two powerful recollections the recollection of impermanence. Really reflecting on it. Because the more we reflect on it and bring it into the moment, the less tendency there is for the mind to get attached and to crave. We're reminding ourselves this is changing. And so we can just settle back and open to whatever the experience is without that added movement of grasping and clinging. And the reflection on death. One of the 40 meditation subjects, classical objects of meditation in the Buddhist tradition, meditation on death, reflection on death, it really puts what we're doing in a perspective. The one line that (coughs) enlightened the first disciple of the Buddha... Everything that has the nature to arise also has the nature to pass away. <laughs> it's so simple. <laughs> Somehow, can we, can we really get it? So whatever it is, has the nature to arise. If it does, if it has the nature to arise, it will also have the nature to pass. And so then, what's a proper relationship to it? We really begin to see very deeply for ourselves what is of the deepest value. What is the highest value? What are we doing with our lives? Our wisdom is this investigative power of just seeing what is true, seeing how things are working. The nature of wisdom in the mind, the nature of this factor is light. It illuminates our minds, it illuminates the Dhamma. And what is so wondrous about it is that the light of a single candle can dispel the darkness of a thousand years. doesn't matter how much darkness, how much ignorance there has been. One moment of clear seeing, one moment of illumination, it dispels that darkness. So if we can have one moment after the other of this light of wisdom, we really come to a profound living of the Dhamma, not simply practicing it. I'd like to close just with a short teaching from Ajahn Chah. In ending, I wish that you continue your journeys and practice with much wisdom. Use the wisdom that you have already developed to persevere in practice. This can become the ground for your growth, for the deepening of yet greater understanding and love. Understand that you can deepen your practice in many ways. Don't be lazy. If you find yourself lazy, then work to strengthen those qualities which overcome it. Don't be fearful or timid. If you are timid in practice, then work with your mind so that you can overcome that. With the proper effort and with time, understanding will unfold by itself. But in all cases, use your own natural wisdom. You come to where you have no more questions, to that place of silence to the place in which there is oneness with the Buddha, with the Dhamma, with the universe. And only you can do that. So do it already. From now on, it's up to you. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit slash donate.